0: Chapter 1, Section 3 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Olivia. Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung, translated by Constance Ellen Long, 1867 to 1923. Chapter 1, Section 3. Development of the Somnambulic Personalities. At the beginning of many seances, the glass was allowed to move by itself, when occasionally the advice followed in stereotyped fashion, You must ask. Since convinced spiritualists took part in the seances, all kinds of spiritualistic wonders were of course demanded, and especially the protecting spirits. In reply, sometimes names of well-known dead people were produced, sometimes unknown names such as Berta de Verlors, Elizabeth von Ter Felsenberg, Ulrich von Gerbenstein, etc. The controlling spirit was almost without exception, the medium's grandfather, who once explained he loved her more than anyone in this world because he had protected her from childhood up and knew all her thoughts. This personality produced a flood of biblical maxims, edifying observations, and songbook verses. The following is a specimen. In true believing to faith in God cling ever nigh, Thy heavenly comfort never leaving, Which having men can never die. Refuge in God is peace forever, When earthly cares oppress the mind, Who from the heart can pray is never, bowed down by fate howe'er unkind. Numerous similar elaborations, Betrayed by their banal unctuous contents, Their origin in some tract or other, when S.W. had to speak in ecstasy, lively dialogues developed between the circle members and the somnambulic personality. The content of the answers received is essentially just the same commonplace edifying stuff as that of the psychographic communications. The character of this personality is distinguished by its dry and tedious solemnity, rigorous conventionality, and pietistic virtue, which is not consistent with the historic reality. The grandfather is the medium's guide and protector during the ecstatic state he gives all kinds of advice prophecies later attacks and the visions she will see on waking and so forth he orders cold bandages gives directions concerning the medium's lying down or the date of the seances his relationship to the medium is an extremely tender one in liveliest contrast to this heavy dream person stands a personality appearing first sporadically in the psychographic communications of the first seance it soon disclosed itself as the dead brother of a mr r who was then taking part in the seance this dead brother mr pr was full of commonplaces about brotherly love towards his living brother he evaded particular questions in all manner of ways but he developed a quite astonishing eloquence toward the ladies of the circle, and in particular offered his allegiance to one whom Mr. P. R. had never known when alive. He affirmed that he had already cared very much for her in his lifetime, and often met her in the street without knowing who she was, and was now uncommonly delighted to become acquainted with her in this unusual manner. With such insipid compliments, scornful remarks to the men, harmless, childish jokes, and so forth, he took up a large part of the seance several of the members found fault with the frivolity and banality of this spirit whereupon he disappeared for one or two seances but soon reappeared at first well behaved often indeed uttering christian maxims but soon dropping back into the old tone besides these two sharply differentiated personalities others appeared who varied but little from the grandfather's type they were mostly dead relatives of the medium The general atmosphere of the first two months' seances was, accordingly, solemnly edifying, disturbed only from time to time by Mr. P. R.'s trivial chatter. Some weeks after the beginning of the seances, Mr. R. left our circle, whereupon a remarkable change took place in Mr. P. R.'s conversation. He became monosyllabic, came less often, and after a few seances, vanished altogether. Later on, he reappeared, but with great infrequency, and for the most part, only when the medium was alone with the particular lady mentioned. Then a new personality forced himself into the foreground. In contrast to Mr. P. R., who always spoke the Swiss dialect, this gentleman adopted an affected North German way of speaking. In all else, he was an exact copy of Mr. P. R. His eloquence was somewhat remarkable, since S.W. had only very scanty knowledge of High German, whilst this new personality who called himself Ulrich von Gerbenstein, spoke an almost faultless German, rich in charming phrases and compliments. Ulrich von Gerbenstein was a witty chatterer, full of repartee, an idler, a great admirer of the ladies, frivolous, and most superficial. During the winter of 1899 to 1900, he gradually came to dominate the situation more and more, and took over, one by one, all the above-mentioned functions of the grandfather, so that under his influence the serious character of the seances disappeared all suggestions to the contrary proved unavailing and at last the seances had on this account to be suspended for longer and longer intervals there is a peculiarity common to all these somnambulic personalities which must be noted they have access to the medium's memory even to the unconscious portion they are also a with the vision she has in the ecstatic state but they have only the most superficial knowledge of her fantasies during the ecstasy. Of the somnambulic dreams, they know only what they occasionally pick up from the members of the circle. On doubtful points, they can give no information, or only such as contradicts the medium's explanations. The stereotyped answer to these questions runs, Ask Ifenis. Ifenis knows. From the examples given of different ecstatic moments, it is clear that the medium's consciousness is by no means idle during the trance, but develops a striking and multiplex fantastic activity. For the reconstruction of S.W.'s somnambulic self, we have to depend altogether upon her several statements. For, in the first place, her spontaneous utterances connecting her with the waking self are few and often irrelevant. And in the second, very many of these ecstatic states go by without gesture and without speech so that no conclusions as to the inner happenings can afterwards be drawn from the external appearances. S.W. is almost totally amnesic for the automatic phenomena during ecstasy, as far as they come within the territory of the new personalities of her ego. Of all the other phenomena, such as loud talking, babbling, and so forth, which are directly connected with her own ego, she usually has a clear remembrance. But in every case there is complete amnesia only during the first few minutes after the ecstasy. Within the first half hour, during which there usually prevails a kind of semi somnambulism with a dreamlike manner, hallucinations, and so forth, the amnesia gradually disappears whilst fragmentary memories emerge of what has occurred, but in a quite irregular and arbitrary fashion. The later seances were usually begun by our hands being joined and laid on the table, whereupon the table at once began to move. Meanwhile, S.W. gradually became somnambulic took her hands from the table, lay back on the sofa, and fell into the ecstatic sleep. She sometimes related her experiences to us afterwards, but showed herself very reticent if strangers were present. After the very first ecstasy, she indicated that she played a distinguished role among the spirits. She had a special name, as had each of the spirits. Hers was Ivenes. Her grandfather looked after her with particular care. In the ecstasy with the flower vision, we learnt her special secret— hidden till then beneath the deepest silence. During the seances in which her spirit spoke, she made long journeys, mostly to relatives, to whom she said she appeared, or she found herself on the other side, in that space between the stars, which people think is empty, but in which there are really very many spirit worlds. In the semi somnambulic state, which frequently followed her attacks, she once described, in peculiar poetic fashion, a landscape on the other side, a wondrous moonlit valley set aside for the races not yet born. She represented her somnambulic ego as being almost completely released from the body. It is a fully grown but small black-haired woman of pronounced Jewish type, clothed in white garments, her head covered with a turban. She understands and speaks the language of the spirits. For spirits still, from old human custom, do speak to one another, although they do not really need to, since they mutually understand one another's thoughts. End quote. She does not really always talk with the spirits, but just looks at them and so understands their thoughts. She travels in the company of four or five spirits, dead relatives, and visits her living relatives and acquaintances in order to investigate their life and their way of thinking. She further visits all places which lie within the radius of these spectral inhabitants. From her acquaintanceship with Kerner's book. She discovered and improved upon the ideas of the black spirits who are kept enchanted in certain places or exist partly beneath the earth's surface. This activity caused her much trouble and pain. In and after the ecstasy, she complained of suffocating feelings, violent headaches, and so forth. But every fortnight on Wednesdays, she could pass the whole night in the garden on the other side in the company of holy spirits. There she was taught everything concerning the forces of the world, the endless complicated relationships and affinities of human beings, and all besides, about the laws of reincarnation, the inhabitants of the stars, and so forth. Unfortunately, only the system of the world forces and reincarnation achieved any expression. As to the other matters, she only let fall disconnected observations. For example, once she returned from a railway journey in an extremely disturbed state, it was thought at first something unpleasant had happened, till she managed to compose herself and said, a star inhabitant had sat opposite to her in the train. From the description which she gave of this being, I recognized a well-known elderly merchant, I happen to know, who has a rather unsympathetic face. In connection with this experience, she related all kinds of peculiarities of these star-dwellers. They have no godlike souls as men have. They pursue no science, no philosophy, but in technical arts they are far more advanced than men. Thus, on Mars, a flying machine has long been in existence. The whole of Mars is covered with canals. These canals are cleverly excavated lakes and serve for irrigation. The canals are quite superficial. The water in them is very shallow. The excavating caused the inhabitants of Mars no particular trouble, for the soil there is lighter than the Earth's. The canals are nowhere bridged, but that does not prevent communication for everything travels by flying machine. Wars no longer occur on the stars, for no differences of opinion exist. The star dwellers have not human bodies, but the most laughable ones possible, such as one would never imagine. Human spirits, who are allowed to travel on the other side, may not set foot on the stars. Equally, wandering star dwellers may not come to the Earth, but must remain at a distance of 25 meters above the Earth's surface. Should they transgress, they remain in the power of the earth and must assume human bodies, and are only set free again after their natural death. As men, they are cold, hard-hearted, cruel. S.W. recognizes them by a singular expression in which the spiritual is lacking, and by their hairless, eyebrowless, sharply cut faces. Napoleon was a star-dweller. In her journeys, she does not see the places through which she hastens. She has a feeling of floating and the spirits tell her when she is at the right spot then as a rule she only sees the face and upper part of the person to whom she is supposed to appear or whom she wishes to see she can seldom say in what kind of surroundings she sees this person occasionally she saw me but only my head without any surroundings she occupied herself much with the enchanting of spirits and for this purpose she wrote oracular sayings in a foreign tongue on slips of paper which she concealed in all sorts of queer places. An Italian murderer, presumably living in my house, and whom she called Conventi, was specially displeasing to her. She tried several times to cast a spell upon him, and without my knowledge hid several papers about on which messages were written. These were later found by chance. One such, written in red ink, was as follows. Conventi marcha forgovi Ivenis conventi go ordin astef vent gen Pallas, vent alis, ton prost afta ben genalis. Unfortunately, I never obtained any interpretation of this. S. W. was quite inaccessible in this matter. Occasionally, the somnolent Ivenis speaks directly to the public. She does so in a dignified fashion rather precociously, but she is not wearisomely unctuous and impossibly twaddling as are her two guides. She is a serious, mature person, devout and pious, full of womanly tenderness and great modesty, always yielding to the judgments of others. This expression of plaintive emotion and melancholy resignation is peculiar to her. She looks beyond this world and unwillingly returns to reality. She bemoans her hard lot and her unsympathetic family surroundings. Associated with this, there is something elevated about her. She commands her spirits, despises the twaddling chatter of Gerbenstein, consoles others, directs those in distress, warns and protects them from dangers to body and soul. She is the intermediary for the entire intellectual output of all manifestations, but she herself ascribes it to the direction of the spirits. It is Ivenis who entirely controls S.W.'s semisomnibulic state. In semisomnibilism, S.W. gave some of those taking part in the seances the opportunity to compare her with the prophetess of Privorst. This suggestion was not without results. S.W. gave hints of earlier existences which she had already lived through, and after a few weeks she suddenly disclosed a whole system of reincarnations, although she had never before mentioned anything of the kind. Evenis is a spiritual being who is something more than the spirits of other human beings. Every human spirit must incorporate himself twice in the course of the centuries, but Evenis must incorporate herself at least once every two hundred years. Besides herself, only two other persons have participated in this fate, namely Swedenborg and Miss Florence Cook, Crook's famous medium. S.W. calls these two personages her brother and sister. She gave no information about their pre-existences. In the beginning of the nineteenth century, Evenis was Frau Haufe, the prophetess of Prevorst. At the end of the 18th century, a clergyman's wife in central Germany, locality unknown. As the latter, she was seduced by Goethe and bore him a child. In the 15th century, she was a Saxon countess and had the poetic name of Terfelsenberg. Ulrich von Gerbenstein is a relative from that line. The interval of 300 years and her adventure with Goethe must be atoned for by the sorrows of the prophetess of Prevorst. In the 13th century, she was a noblewoman of southern France called De Valors and was burnt as a witch. From the 13th century to the Christian persecution under Nero, there were numerous reincarnations of which S.W. could give no detailed account. In the Christian persecution under Nero, she played a martyr's part. Then comes a period of obscurity till the time of David, when Evenus was an ordinary Jewess. After her death, she received from Astaph, an angel from a high heaven, the mandate for her future wonderful career. In all her pre-existences, she was a medium and an intermediary in the intercourse between this side and the other. Her brothers and sisters are equally old and have the like vocation. In her various pre-existences, she was sometimes married and in this way gradually founded a whole system of relationships with whose endless complicated inner relations she occupied herself in many ecstasies. Thus, for example, About the eighth century, she was the mother of her earthly father and, moreover, of her grandfather and mine, hence the striking friendship of these two old gentlemen, otherwise strangers. As Madame de Valors, she was the present writer's mother. When she was burnt as a witch, the writer took it much to heart and went into a cloister at Rouen, wore a gray habit, became prior, wrote a work on botany, and died at over eighty years of age. In the refectory of the cloister, there hung a picture of Madame de Valors, in which she was depicted in a half-reclining position. S.W. in the semi somnambulic state often took this position on the sofa. It corresponds exactly to that of Madame Ricamier in David's well-known picture. A gentleman who often took part in the séances, who had some slight resemblance to the writer, was also one of her sons from that period. Around this core of relationship there grouped themselves, more or less intimately connected, all the persons in any way related or known to her. One came from the fifteenth century, another, a cousin, from the eighteenth century, and so on. From the three great family stocks grew by far the greater part of the present European peoples. She and her brothers and sisters are descended from Adam, who arose by materialization. The other then-existing families, from whom Cain took his wife, were descended from apes. S.W. produced from this circle of relationship an extensive family gossip, a very flood of romantic stories, piquant adventures, and so forth. Sometimes the target of her romances was a lady acquaintance of the writers who, for some undiscoverable reason, was peculiarly antipathetic to her. She declared that this lady was an incarnation of a celebrated Parisian poisoner who had achieved great notoriety in the 18th century. She maintained that this lady still continued her dangerous work, but in a much more ingenious way than formerly. Through the inspiration of the wicked spirits who accompany her, she had discovered a liquid which, when merely exposed to the air, attracted bacilli and formed a splendid developing medium for them. By means of this liquid, which she was wont to mix with the food, the lady had brought about the death of her husband, who had indeed died of tuberculosis, also one of her lovers and of her own brother for the sake of his inheritance. Her eldest son was an illegitimate child by her lover. As a widow, she had secretly borne to another lover, an illegitimate child, and finally, she had had an unnatural relationship with her own brother who was later on poisoned. In this way, S.W. spun innumerable stories in which she believed quite implicitly. The persons of these stories appeared, in the drama of her visions, as did the lady before referred to, going through the pantomime of making confession and receiving absolution of sins. Everything interesting occurring in her surroundings was incorporated in this system of romances and given an order in the network of relationships, with more or less exact statements as to their pre-existences and the spirits influencing them. It fared thus with all who made S.W.'s acquaintance. They were valued at a second or first incarnation, according as they possessed a marked or indefinite character. They were generally described as relatives, and always exactly in the same definite way. Only subsequently, often several weeks later, after an ecstasy, there would make its appearance a new, complicated romance which explained the striking relationship through pre-existences or through illegitimate relations." Persons sympathetic to S.W. were usually very near relatives. Most of these family romances were very carefully made up so that to contradict them was impossible. They were always worked out with a quite bewildering certainty and surprised one by an extremely clever evaluation of certain details which she had noticed or taken from somewhere. For the most part, the romances had a ghastly character. Murder by poison and dagger, seduction and divorce, forgery of wills played the chief role. End of chapter one, section three, read by Olivia.